the deal tomorrow. A lot of you guys know Zig, and he is speaking tomorrow down at is it Reunion uh, with uh, Peter Lowe. And I don't know if you know about this deal, but uh, Peter Lowe is an interesting guy. Peter is a guy who is a, uh, has a very unique uh, approach to evangelism. Peter uh, holds these uh, uh, seminars, these, what do you call it? It's called, maybe you've seen this in the paper. It's called Get Motivated. And he's got, uh, he puts, the, he does these all over the country in big arenas. So he's got Zig there, he's got, uh, uh, you know, these Larry King's there, so you'll get a lot of expositional preaching from Larry. <laughs> he's had Barbara Bush, he's had George Bush, he's had Schwarzkopf. And what Peter does, and, and he, he's brilliant on how he markets these things, because you can bring like your whole office, three people or 800 people for $49. <laughs> but if you come the day of the deal, it's like 240 bucks. Uh, now, why does, I mean, these things are a dime a dozen. Why does Peter do this? Well, Peter brings these guys in, and of course, Zig is a strong believer. But uh, he brings people in that would normally never walk into a church. And after all these sessions, after it's all done, Peter does an optional session, which by that time they're all going to stay for, uh, on, on what true success really is. And what he does then is that he caps this thing off, and he's got a captive audience. And he presents the gospel to people who would never walk into a church. All they want is success. But he uses a hook to get them in. And uh, anyway, we got four tickets to this thing. If you're interested, they'll be up here. And uh, anyway, someone had those and didn't want them to go to waste if you're interested in that. All right. Great weather, huh? Isn't it great? I think we had to go out and let's do let's go out in the parking lot. Yeah. We'll do this tonight. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? All right. Well, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, if these guys uh, are, are like me this week, this has been a busy week. Just a lot going on, coming from a whole bunch of different directions, and uh, it's that's not all that uh, uncommon uh, in this day and age in which we live. But Father, we want to be men who live wisely. We don't want to be unwise. We want to be careful and purposeful in how we live because there is so much at stake. And in an age where so many are concerned with success that is, quite frankly, just superficial and fleeting, uh, that's why that place will be full tomorrow. There are so many people that want that success. But. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself and you have told us the truth about life and about eternity and about what counts and about what really matters. We, uh, we want to live our lives with your goal in mind and according to your blueprint. So as we're here tonight, teach us, instruct us. Uh, some of us need encouragement tonight. Some of us, Lord, need a, a, a specific word that would um, let us know, Lord, down deep, that you haven't forgotten about us. Now, we know that intellectually, but sometimes we just get weary. Sometimes we just get worn out. Uh, and, uh, Lord, your word says, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circles. That can be just something that happens in a conversation, but it can also come from the Word of God. We ask that you would give that to us tonight. 
custom design, Lord, these principles to, uh, to keep us on track. If we, and Lord, the tendency is that we drift. We drift because um, the, the, the lines on the road in our culture have been, uh, have been blotted out. There is no right. There is no wrong. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. That's not how we want to live. Instruct us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, today was a day with some um, significance for our nation because uh, the, the Congress had granted to the president uh, their sanction and their approval uh, and have given him the authority uh, to go against our opponent, which is Iraq. So we are in a uh, situation of war. We are in uh, a, a time of conflict, and we are acutely aware of it. Um, the passage that we're in tonight in Philippians it is not unlike what happened today with President Bush and Congress. Um, the fact of the matter, and we are in Philippians 1, and we're going to deal with just a short section that closes off uh, Philippians chapter 1. In, in this particular passage, uh, Paul is addressing the troops. Uh, Paul, is, uh, Paul is reminding them that as they are at their post, that they are to conduct themselves in a particular way. Now let's read Philippians 1, beginning with verse 27, and uh, note, if you will, the context. It may not become apparent at first that there is a war, but, but we know that we're in spiritual war. We war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, an opponent is mentioned here. And with that in mind, let's read this. Paul writes to this uh, church at Philippi, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. See what he's talking about there? That's teamwork. Uh, you've got to move together in the same direction. Notice, notice that emphasis again. I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's no divisiveness. With one mind, there's unity of thought. Striving, catch this, together for the faith of the gospel. That's a key phrase that we'll come back to. In no way alarmed by your opponents, there it is, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here uh, to be in me. When you're at war, uh, there is an essential element that has to be uh, in your heart and in your mind and in your life. Nobody likes war. Nobody in their right mind wants to be at war. Uh, war is escalated conflict. 
Um, uh, Mary was telling me yesterday, she heard on the news that we are moving troops out of Germany down into the Middle East. I think she said into Kuwait. Uh, well, we know a young man who joined up a year ago after September 11th, and where is he stationed? He's in Germany. He's on his way to the Middle East. He's probably going to see battle here before long. Uh, what's that young guy feeling? What are all those young men feeling? Well, I, gosh, there's got to be anxiety. There's got to be concern. There's got to be some nervousness. And there's got to be the question late at night, if I'm in combat, how will I perform? How, how will I do? How will I handle it? Because you never know until you, until you get there. Um, that, that's not an easy situation. It's, it's one that is absolutely frightening. Um, the, the element that is absolutely non-negotiable in war, the element that has to be there is the element of courage. Uh, courage is the commodity that, uh, if you don't have it, if you don't have it, you're already defeated. Uh, what is courage? Uh, does courage mean that you're fearless? Does courage, you know, if you played football, there are certain guys it, it takes a little bit of courage to, to play football or play rugby or a contact sport. Doesn't take much courage um, to be a figure skater. <clears throat> it just popped into my head. Um, <laughs> it takes some courage. It takes some courage to play hockey, doesn't it? Those guys are nuts. When you play football, there are certain guys, and you figure it out before long on your team. There are always two or three guys that are fearless. They're crazy. Some of you guys met my brother, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, you, you know why Jeff is so beat up? You know why he, he, he's around on a cane? Jeff was a great athlete. He really was. He probably told you that, didn't he? <laughs> uh, of the three of us, my brother Mike, who passed away, Mike was the best. Mike was a big guy. I mean, Mike was big. Uh, Mike... Uh, Mike was about 6'5", and when Mike was thin, he was about 290, 295. Thin, thin. Uh, he could play comfortably tackle at about 330, 340. Uh, but the thing that surprised guys, I remember, I remember uh, uh, one summer, we were at Mount Hermon uh, up in Northern California. And we were up there, Mike and I were up there at some deal, and we were in our 20s. And, and uh, we walked up there, and some guys were playing basketball. And some of these guys played on the Stanford football team. And we walked up there, and they look at Mike, and they're thinking, they're thinking, uh, you know, we're not going to, we don't want, we don't want this guy. He's too big. He's carrying too much weight. And uh, we wound up playing on the same team. And it was fun, because Mike got underneath. He went down. He posted. I mean, he, he killed those suckers. Because what they didn't know was, how quick he was and how fast he was. And, and, and then they started double teaming him, so I started driving and he'd go outside and I'd just whip him a pass and he started hitting these threes. He was just an incredible athlete. Jeff was not as good an athlete, but Jeff got more out of his ability than I did or Mike did. Uh, number one, uh, he's, he's, the, he's number three brother. And so, you know, we just terrorized him. So Jeff's got a lot of bitterness. Um, but I'll tell you this about Jeff. Jeff was fearless. He was fearless when he played ball. That's why he can't walk. 
Uh, he knew no boundaries. He had no fear. Uh, I was away in college when he was playing his senior year of high school, and uh, he was a tight end. Keith Hernandez, who used to be the Mets' first baseman, was his quarterback, and they were quite a tandem. And so I'd call Jeff and see how the game went. And he always got, because he played tight end on offense and linebacker on defense. And uh, he'd always get excited if, if he was able to, to, to hit a guy, to tackle a guy and knock him out. But, what re but really, what to him was the ultimate, I'm not, I'm not kidding you, what to Jeff was the ultimate is that he hit the guy so hard, it knocked the guy out and it knocked Jeff out. <laughs> now, is there something wrong there or what? He would hit anything. Most guys aren't like that. Most guys are normal. But on a team, there's usually two or three guys, if you get up close to them and you look deep in their eyes, you'll see the word tilt. <laughs> they're not all there. Those are the guys you've got to look out for because they're crazy. Most of us aren't that way. Now, you've got some fearless guys that go into combat. They just go for it. But if you're normal, you've got some apprehension and you've got some fear and you've got some anxiety and you've got some worry, right? But you've got to have courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is going ahead and performing your duties in spite of your fear. That's what courage is. This is a call to arms. It doesn't appear like it when you just read it, but it is a call to arms. I, I love how Warren Wearsby sets up this passage. Listen, listen, to what, um, listen to what he says. And do you see that phrase? Do you see that phrase down at the bottom of 27? where it says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the, what? The faith of the gospel. Now that's, boy, that's loaded. Listen to what Wearsby says. He says, the faith of the gospel is that body of divine truth given to the church. Jude, you know that little book towards the end of the New Testament? Jude calls it the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Uh, the, the faith is truth, it's scripture, it's doctrine. Um, God committed the spiritual treasure to Paul, and he in turn committed it to others, like Timothy, whose responsibility was to commit this deposit to still others. I was, uh, where was I this weekend? Somewhere. I, oh, Augusta, Georgia. And I was... Uh, Afterwards, I was, uh, these guys are just down from Augusta National, this church. And anyway, I was having lunch with some, uh, the pastor and some of the staff, and they'd just been to a big church growth seminar. And uh, they were taking courses in, uh, uh, you know, in marketing and in, uh, uh, you know, uh, being seeker sensitive and all this stuff and how you pull these people in and what you have to do in order uh, because people aren't interested in truth. Quite frankly, they were telling me about certain guys who I am aware of who have big churches who have built their church on gimmicks. And they're telling me, this guy said this, this guy said this, this guy said this, and I'm listening. And, and I could tell they were a little intimidated and they were a little overwhelmed. And uh, I didn't want to put the guy down that they had heard. But I felt like I had to say something. So I just looked at the guy and I said, preach the word. Just preach the word. You know what's happened to us? 
a lot of evangelical churches in America, we don't have confidence in the Word of God. We don't have confidence anymore that the Word of God can change people's lives. So we resort to other things to pull them in and to entertain them. Uh, doesn't mean we can't be creative. It just means that we can't forget what we are called to do, which is to declare the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is a body of truth. That's what the gospel is. He goes on and he says this. Uh, but there is an enemy who was out to steal the treasure of God's truth from God's people. Paul had met the enemy in Philippi, and he is now facing him in Rome. If Satan can, oh, you guys got to catch this, all right? You guys there? Don't 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 uh, don't zone out on me here, because you'll miss the whole thing for the rest of the evening. Okay. You got a B12 pill or something you can pop just real quick. Listen to this. If Satan can only rob believers of their Christian faith the doctrines that are distinctively theirs, then he can cripple and defeat the ministry of the gospel. See, we're talking about doctrine. We're talking about truth. We're talking about scripture. It is sad to hear people say, I don't care what you believe, just so long as you live right. What we believe determines how we behave, and wrong belief ultimately means a wrong life. <clears throat> I've been reading this book on... Uh, uh, on Scotland, and, and the fact that Scotland, uh, this little country of two million people, uh, John Knox was the guy that brought the Reformation to Scotland, and uh, some radical things came out of, out of uh, Scotland. Just this little nondescript country that lost their identity and folded into England and became part of Great Britain. Uh, but so much of what came out of Scotland was transferred to the founding fathers here in America. There were certain ideas that came from the believers in Scotland that came from nowhere else. Um, but I'm reading this book by this guy who is a liberal scholar, and he is talking not about the believers in Scotland like John Knox, who had, who had biblical truth, but he's talking about the next generation, the, the guys who came up with, with, with what is called the Scottish Enlightenment. When you hear the term enlightenment, you know, historically, what it means is they got enlightened that this book is not the word of God. That's what that means. So he started writing about this one particular clergyman who was very, very influential. And this guy came from a Christian base, but he was very uncomfortable with the whole teaching of Scripture. There were certain things that were anathema to him. And this guy took all of the Christian virtues, and he boiled it down, and he said, the highest of all Christian virtues is politeness. Uh, I mean, and this guy's serious. And this guy had an incredible impact in Scotland. Uh, he had an incredible impact uh, throughout Europe. Uh, the, the, uh, politeness isn't even, in, that isn't even in the scripture in terms of a virtue. He put that over love. He put it over uh, purity. Um, what happened to that guy? Well, what happened, and, and he taught, he was considered a Christian theologian. What happened was, he hollowed out the, the guts of the gospel. He hollowed out the, uh, the whole counsel of God. That is always the struggle, and that is always the battle that we are fighting. Uh, we've been fighting it uh, 
Well, we're always fighting it. What was the whole thing with the Southern Baptists about in the seminaries? It was about the inerrancy of the Word of God. Because what happened is, you had a lot of people in Southern Baptist churches who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, who would die for Scripture. And they got their co-op program, and these churches are sending money, and they got seminaries all over the country. But what Joe Average guy, Joe Average Baptist, going to First Baptist of Keller, Texas, didn't realize is that in Southern Baptist seminaries, they were teaching that the Word of God wasn't inerrant. They were teaching Paul didn't write Ephesians. They were teaching that there wasn't just one Daniel, there had to be at least two. Uh, there had to be uh, not one Isaiah, there had to be two. Some thought there were three. Because you see, Isaiah predicted certain things early in the book that would come true, and they came true. So there's no way that guy could have known that in advance, so there had to be two Isaiahs in Southern Baptist seminaries. So what happened was you had a couple of men who looked at this and said, this isn't right, and we need to take this back. So uh, was it Paul Pressler, and then you had uh, uh, Paige Patterson. And they figured out, you know what, we need, this isn't right, this is wrong. We're sending these young men off to seminary. And there was a, Harold Denzel wrote a book called Battle for the Bible that talked about this. And uh, so you've got different kinds of Baptists. You've got uh, Baptists that believe the Word of God, and then you have what you call moderates. That's what they call themselves. He, this guy thinks that's, he thinks that's funny. I do too. Um, I was invited, and I didn't know it was a moderate church, but I, I was invited in there and I was teaching, and somehow I got on this, and I started talking about moderates, not realizing where I was. <laughs> and I made this statement. I said, a moderate is a liberal in drag. <laughs> now, they weren't real happy about that. And at the conclusion, you know, there was a pastor, and then he, there was also a, a note from the guy who was chairman of the Board of Deacons. And anyway. Um, well, you know what? The guy came up to me, and uh, he said, I was disturbed by some of the things you said. I said, really? About like what? And he said, well, like what you had to say about, he said, I'm a moderate. He said, no, I believe the Bible, every word of the Bible, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I said, well, let me stop you right there. You're telling me you believe the scripture from A to Z? He goes, yeah. I said, and you're no moderate. I don't know what your terminology is, but you believe in the word of God. Now, he said, well, I'm a social moderate. I said, you know what? I don't even know what that is, and I don't care. I'm talking about the word of God. I'm talking about the truth. Um, uh, I read this morning in World Magazine that um, they had an article about a Presbyterian uh, pastor, Presbyterian Church U.S. And this guy has basically said, what's the big deal about Jesus being the only way to God? That's what he said. Okay, well, that's, 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 that's unbelievable. So see, this is everywhere. It's just not back in Scotland 200, 300 years ago. It's with us. There is always an issue that we are contending for the faith. The enemy, the, the battle that we're in, the battle that we're in is a battle for the gospel. 
And the enemy is relentless to get us away from the truth, from the doctrine of the Word of God. We live in an age that says that there is no absolute truth. That's what postmodernism is all about. Uh, there is no right or wrong. That's what our culture believes. That's what kids are taught in schools. That's what DISD teaches. That's what Plano teaches. That's what, that's what they all teach, because the NEA has them teaching it. Now, if you're a, a Bible-believing Christian, uh, you know that you're at war if you're a teacher. Uh, because, because, you see, you're living in a culture that is anti what you believe and anti what you stand for. Now, that's the way it is, and that's what we're up against, and that's what we're fighting. And you see, therefore, therefore it, takes, it takes courage. It always takes courage to be at war. Now, here's what you've got going on here. What you've got is that you've got Paul... And he's instructing the troops. And uh, what he basically is doing is, is that right out of the blocks in verse 27, if you want an outline, I'll give you a two-fold outline. Uh, here's the first point. Number one, you've got to have courage. You've got to have courage to declare the gospel. Okay? That's number one. It flat out takes courage to declare the gospel. Um, what is the gospel? It's this body of truth that we believe. It's the word of God. It's the scriptures. Um, what's happening is, is that there is an erosion of the word of God among those who we would consider to be evangelical. I, uh, I was reading the magazine from Biola University out in California. I, my daughter graduated from there, and I have a son there. Uh, Biola stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And um, they used to be in downtown Los Angeles and uh, associated there where J. Vernon McGee was, Church of the Open Door. But now they they got a nice campus out uh, close to Fullerton where Chuck used to pastor. Uh, this article very interesting article. It's called, it's called Evangelicals on the Decline. Um, now, George Barna has done some research, and first of all, we've got to define our terms. What is an evangelical? Now, track with me here, okay? He gives some traits of what an evangelical is in terms of what they believe. Number one, they have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is important in their life today. Now, this isn't how I define it. It's how Barnes define it. But I just want to give you a grid, okay? Number two, they will believe they will go to heaven after death because they have confessed their sins and accepted Christ as Savior. Three, they believe the Bible is totally accurate in all it teaches, right? You guys are probably with me on this so far, right? If not, you're probably at the wrong church. But we're glad you're here. We really are. Uh, evangelicals indicate their faith is very important in their life today. They believe they have a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with non-Christians. They believe that Satan is real and that, he ex and that he is active. They believe eternal salvation is possible only through grace, through Christ, and not through works. They believe Jesus lived a sinless life on the earth. Uh, we also ought to throw in there that he was born of a virgin. He's not hitting this thoroughly. He's just hitting on some high spots. Uh, they describe God as the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today. All right? So that's kind of a general 
uh, outline of an evangelical, so to speak. All right. But you have to understand, this article starts off by saying, the number of evangelicals in America has dropped from 12% in 1992 to just 5% in 2002. We're losing ground. Listen to this. The bad news is that there are far less of us than you may have realized, and we keep getting fewer. But we got all these churches that are growing, don't we? Keep that in mind. While 77% of Americans call themselves Christians, only 5% meet the criteria for being evangelicals. This is down from 12% just 10 years ago. Uh, one guy says here, by evangelical, we're talking about the thin slice of people who are really biblical Christians. Now, they have another category. And this, listen to this. Uh, the rest of the Christians include 35% whom Barna identifies as non-evangelical, born-again Christians. That's an amazing statement. Now, he goes on and defines them. Non-evangelical, born-again Christians are people who are born again, but reject a key biblical teaching. Did you get that? You say, well, that can't be. I'm telling you, it's everywhere. Everywhere. I can't read this whole thing to you. <clears throat> Listen. I sound like Charles Stanley there. Listen. I don't want to do that. As a result, he's talking about the demise. He's saying, as a result, evangelicals are accepting beliefs that would have horrified people 50 years ago. Why? Because we've gotten away from the authority of this book. We've gotten away from the gospel, from the faith of the gospel. He goes on and says, for example, uh, Dr. DeWeese, a theologian at Biola, mentioned the growing acceptance of the view known as annihilationism. What is annihilationism? Well, it's the belief that hell is not a real place of eternal torment, but rather a symbol for the non-existence of the wicked after death. So in other words, what the Bible says about either spending uh, eternity in heaven with Christ or spending eternity in hell, you have evangelicals who don't believe that and don't teach that. Because what happens is, God would never send someone to hell, and it would never be eternal. He'll just annihilate you so there's no pain. Where, last week I said, where did the Catholics get purgatory? They didn't get it from the Bible. Where did these guys get annihilationism? They didn't get it from the Bible. But you see, it makes them comfortable. It makes them feel a little better. He goes on and says, um, Another unscriptural view that is gaining ground is open theology. We've talked about that in here. Open theism or open theology teaches that God does not know all details about the future. Amazing. He goes on and says, to make Christianity seem more tolerant and thus more acceptable to the culture, other harsh doctrines are being watered down, including the reality of sin, the wrath of God, and the, exclusive, and the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way. <clears throat> I was speaking at a, uh, I, I was speaking at an event with a lot of Christian college kids, and they, uh, many of them went to schools, quote unquote Christians. Let me just tell you, a lot of them went to Baylor. And so what I did was, I found an old Bible 
out in the the narthex or whatever the heck they call that thing out in front you know you know they got a little, all these bibles people have left and they've been there for 12 years i got one of those old bibles and i was up there and i was talking to him about this concept and what i did i was talking about you know beliefs and we, we edit and we cut and paste and you know there are teachers that will say to you that you know the bible can't be trusted here and here and i said what they might as well do and i just i just ripped the page right out of it i mean they were stunned and then I said, they turn over here, and then you just rip another page. They couldn't believe it. And, and, and what was interesting, some of them were really offended. And I, I said, you know, what's interesting to me is that you're more offended. I mean, what, what I did was, and hey, we respect the Bible, we love the Bible. But let me tell you something. I tore a page out of a Bible to illustrate a point. You got upset. Why is it you don't get near upset when a professor doesn't tear a literal page, but he just cuts it to pieces philosophically and spiritually and behaviorally. See, that's the real issue. They're, they're, they're tearing up the Word of God. That's always the issue, guys. It's what we're fighting. It's, it's, it's what we're up against. Um, so so you, when you send your kid off to a Christian, quote-unquote, Christian college, you better be real careful. I, I don't care how solid they've been. You better do a little homework. You better check some things out. Uh, why? Because of what Paul's talking about right here, uh, because of the fact that the gospel uh, is a body of truth that is always under attack, and especially in a day where, in, in which we live, where, where the whole issue is, is tolerance. Well, see, if tolerance is the primary virtue, this guy 200 years ago said politeness is the, is the primary virtue. Well, politeness and tolerance are very similar. Would you agree with that? Because if you're polite, you're tolerant of everything. G.K. Chesterton said, tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Did you get that? It's the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Now, now uh, tolerance in the, in, the, in the sense that we accept people who don't have the same beliefs? Sure we do. Are we polite to them? Sure we are. But does that mean that we cave in on the truth of the Scripture? I mean, if, if you've already got guys saying Jesus is not the only way, if you've already got guys saying that hell is not a real place, if you've already got guys saying God doesn't know everything about the future, I mean, see, there's no stopping them. There, there's, it, this is the battle. This is the battle that we're in. And here's something that's interesting. When there is wrong, you know why Paul was so big on this? Number one, he's defending the truth. But here's the second reason. When there is wrong doctrine, there is no urgency at all. I have never seen, I'm going to be honest with you, I've never seen a guy who is deficient in doctrine, who is really passionate about seeing people come to Christ. Why would he be? Number one, there really is no need because God is going to accept every, every, He's going to accept everybody anyway. You see, when you when when you cut out the truth of the gospel, there's no urgency, there's no passion, uh, there's no drive. Um, but but I've made the point. Um, we we live in an interesting time because. Uh, uh, you guys should know you're fortunate 
You're fortunate to be in a church where the Word of God is declared. And you know that. That's why you're here. Uh, the Word of God is not compromised here. The, the Word of God is held up. We are under the Bible here. We preach the Bible. We preach Christ. There are, uh, there are churches in this community that preach Christ. But there are evangelical churches, and we have to realize this, that are hedging, that, 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 that are backing off. This, this idea has become uh, so prevalent that when, when you look at the literature that's, that's around today, there's a guy named David Wells, and he's a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston. Uh, Wells, is, uh, Wells is very discerning. And one of the things that Wells says is, um, see, I, I tend to get a little opinionated. Maybe you've picked that up from time to time. <laughs> Um, and when I read Wells this summer, he said something that just amazed me, because I, I, he said something that I had been thinking for quite a while, and I hadn't heard anyone else say it. He was talking about, there was a magazine called Christianity Today. Most pastors read Christianity Today. Uh, it was started by Billy Graham as an evangelical um, uh, magazine. Christianity Today, in my opinion, continues to veer to the left. They have another, uh, they have another uh, publication called Leadership. Um, leadership continues to veer to the left. Uh, and when I read Wells, he went after him big time. And he did an analysis of Leadership Magazine. And what he said was that basically, uh, he'd gone through all the volumes, all the issues. And generally speaking, when you read Leadership Magazine, the thing that the average pastor would come away with, and here's where evangelicalism has gone, is that where the, the, the trend and the job description, if you will, for most pastors in the American evangelical church today is that, number one, he must be a psychologist, and number two, he must be a manager or, or a CEO. So many of the articles in there are not about, are, are, are not about, uh, are not about scripture. They're, they're not about personal purity. They're not about discipleship. They're about uh, business. They're about this. They're about that. The, the primary task of a pastor is to preach the word. Wells also has a study where he talks about the expectations of pastors over the last two centuries. And he goes back to the average church about 250 years ago and was a pastor all by himself, no staff. So he had about four things that Basically, he was responsible for it. The primary thing was to preach the word. And then he goes on into about the 1860s. And in the 1860s, that list had grown from four or five. It had grown to about 11 or 12 things that a pastor was expected to do. Uh, the latest information says that the average evangelical church member, in their mind, they came up with a list of 19 things that a pastor is supposed to do, along with four things that are not usually verbalized. That's pretty intimidating. Um, you know what a pastor is supposed to do? He's supposed to preach the word. That's his primary task. That's his prime, because by preaching the word, he equips the saints to do the work of ministry. Uh, in this culture, it takes courage to declare the gospel. And let me tell you something. As each year goes by, it's going to take more and more courage. Uh, there's going to be a time coming before long uh, 
where it's going to be against the law to say certain, th certain things anywhere in any context. You know that's coming, don't you? So you see, when is it going to come? I don't know. Sometimes those things come sooner than you anticipate. But let's say that's 20 years away. Uh, who, who are going to be the pastors? Who's going to be leading the church 20, 25, 30, 35 years from now? You know what? There are guys in the high school group here. There are guys in the junior high group here and in churches all over. But these guys, are, these guys are in their early teens, and in 30 years, they're going to believe in the evangelical church. You know what those guys are going to need? Those guys are going to need courage. Because you see, for them to declare the truth, it's no big deal to stand up here and declare the truth now because nobody's going to come in here and cuff me. But in 30 years, that might happen. It's going to take some guts. It's going to take some courage. It always takes courage to declare the gospel. What about where you live? What about where you work? Uh, uh, they didn't hire you to be an evangelist, did they? But as you interact with people, and as you eat lunch with them, and they get to know you, see, the tendency is to back off. Now, I'm not talking about going in there and thumping a Bible. You know what I'm talking about. When, when you have the opportunity to, to talk with someone, when you have the opportunity to state what you believe, do you state it, or do you back off? The tendency is to back off because, you see, the gospel is offensive. But it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Um, when I look at this passage, notice, notice in verse 27. He says, I hear of you that you are standing firm. Standing firm. Uh, footwork is critical. Flip over to Ephesians 6 real quick. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. Now, here's another warfare deal, right? Here's battle. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. There it is again. Now verse 14. Stand firm, therefore having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And he goes on through the armor. But three times, in the context of warfare, we are told to stand firm. Um, wasn't it back in the 20s? Was it in the 20s? I think it was like 29 or 30 that the New York Giants were playing the Chicago Bears for the National Football League Championship, and there was an ice storm before the game, and those guys came out, and nobody could do anything because they couldn't keep their feet. They couldn't stand firm. They, they could not get any traction. They could not move a, their opponent. They couldn't do anything because they kept getting their feet knocked out from under them. George Hallis had the advantage because that game was played in Chicago. 
and, and a few minutes into the first quarter, Hallis saw what was going on. He sends a trainer out, and he has not go by, you know, these guys got their cleats on. He sends this guy out. He says, you go out and you get as many tennis shoes as you can possibly get. Rubber sole tennis shoes. Halftime, the Bears change their shoes, and they beat the tar out of the Giants because the Giants had absolutely no way. They're the visiting team. They don't even know where the mall is. There was no mall. Uh, they had no way of standing firm, and suddenly the Bears, with those shoes, were in a little bit better position. They had just a little bit more traction, just enough to take those guys to the cleaners. Yeah. Keeping your feet under you is, is absolutely critical in warfare. And the enemy is always trying to cut out from underneath us the truth of the gospel. Now, you know, we can talk about these denominations, and we can talk about seminaries, and we can talk about uh, pastors, but what about in your life? What about in your life? Is, is there an area in your life, because you see, this is where the enemy is going to hit us. Is there an enemy in your, is there an area in your life, did I say enemy in your life or did I say area? Do what I mean. I think the enemy hits us, uh, he hits evangelicals all the time in terms of uh, men and their commitment, their commitment to their wives. Why do we see so many guys uh, abandoning ship? Where else does he hit us? I think he hits us in our purity. I think he hits us in our ethics. I think he hits us in, uh, uh, in hedging the truth, in our personal relationships with people. Um, you know, there's a book written a few years ago, and I can't remember the title, but basically the whole book was about the fact that we have become a nation of liars. We just lie. We just lie all the time. It's, it's commonplace. Uh, you've had it happen to you. You've had it happen in business. But, but see, the scriptures are very, very clear that we're not to lie one another. We're not to, we're not to deceive one another, but we're to speak truth one to another. See, this is how the enemy gets into our lives and um, distorts and detracts and cuts our feet out from under us because we get influenced by the culture and truth becomes relative and we start how many, of you guys, how many of you guys use a computer at all, use uh, word processing? See, what we can do with a document is, and, and before, I don't know what they did, because before if you had to write a paper or you had to write a report, you know, you'd write it out longhand or you're typing it and you miss it up, and, oh gosh, you know. And now what do we do? Now we just cut, paste, delete. See, that's, that's our culture. We're used to that. See, we can start doing that in our personal lives. We can start doing that with the Word of God. We can cut, we can paste. We can delete, we can change, we can correct. That's the danger. Where are you most susceptible in your life right now in that area? Here's the second thing. Um, but I forgot my transition. I had a great transition here. <clears throat> that went from the first to the second. And, and let me go ahead and give it to you. Because I was so impressed with it, I'm sure not going to ignore it. Okay, so what's the first principle? The first principle is courage to declare the gospel. Okay, the gospel is God's word. All right, now catch this. We need the courage to make God's word known in public, and we need the courage to...
to live it in private. That's courage. We need courage to declare it in public, and we need courage to live it in private. Note, note if you would, uh, back in, uh, in, in Philippians 1. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, you know the interesting thing? Uh, we, we all suffer. We all deal with different things in different ways. We all have afflictions in our lives. Those afflictions that come into our lives are, are a gift from God. Uh, Paul spoke about his thorn in the flesh. But that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, was something that kept Paul acutely aware of his need of the Lord. When uh, Spurgeon said one time, that we could not bear unalloyed happiness. We don't usually use that term. U-N-A-L-L-O-Y-E-D. We, we could not bear pure happiness. Uh, you know why we couldn't bear it? It would probably turn our hearts from the Lord. There, uh, what affliction does is that affliction keeps us mindful of our need of the Lord. Um, I think it was Watson who said that God mixes his afflictions and mercies. Now, why does God do that? Um, one of the things, when, when, when there is an affliction in our life, we tend to be acutely aware of our need of the Lord. Um, and that awareness has to be in our lives because, you see, there is a tremendous tendency in our culture to separate the public from the private. If you pick this up. It's everywhere. Let me give you a shot from Wells because he, uh, he analyzes this with, uh, with, a, with a razor edge and tells us how we got to this particular place because it didn't always used to be this way in our culture. He says, beginning in the 1960s, a sea change, S-E-A, occurred in American culture as a secularization began to take hold. While self-mastery or self-discipline remained a virtue in the marketplace, self-mastery in personal life expressed in such things as attempts to prevent or rectify moral failure increasingly diminished. It certainly disappeared in our public discourse as a religious obligation. In fact, in its place, there arose an ideology of the self that moved to an entirely different direction. Did you catch what he said back there? Self-mastery remained a virtue in the marketplace expressed in such things as attempts to prevent or rectify moral failure. That's gone, isn't it? I mean, those days are over. Uh, that, that all went back to what happened, uh, that all went back to what happened in the 60s. There's a guy named Daniel Yankovic, and he talks about the 60s, note what he says. Yankovic has argued that the set of values that prevailed in the 1960s had been stood on its head by 1980. Traditional morals were routed, and at the heart of the change was a new emphasis on finding the full rich life, ripe with leisure, 
new experience and enjoyment as a replacement for the orderly work-centered attitude of earlier decades. It was a change so pregnant with significance that Yankelvinch likened it to the shifting of tectonic plates beneath the Earth's surface. That's how significant it was. See, that's the culture around us. You make a distinction between a guy's public life and you make a distinction between his private life. The scriptures make no distinction like that. This is a best-selling book. It's called Good to Great. Pretty good book. Um, what this guy, you guys remember this book? What, what Jim Collins did was that uh, he, he had all this, he had this research team. And what they did was they, um, they looked at companies that basically 15 years ago were doing okay, but in 15 years had gone from good to great. And they analyzed the traits of these companies. And uh, he's talking about companies. You see, there's the ones that everybody heard about. And this is before the stock market went down. I read the other day the S&P 500 has lost half its value in the last eight months. That's amazing. Um, uh, so this was written before all that happened. But, you know, so everyone heard about GE and Jack Welch and Coca-Cola and all, you know, everybody's, everybody's cruising. But he, he studied companies in here, in this book, that nobody really knew about, nobody really cared about. But they were companies that were just marginal, that were just average, but in 15 years had per, outperformed all of those companies. Uh, Microsoft, GE, whatever. He talks about the different traits of these companies. And one of the things that he talks about, in fact, the first thing that he talks about is the kind of leadership that they had. Um, he talks about something called level five leadership. Um, He's talking about the guys who ran the company. And this is not a Christian book. And, and you know, this, is a, this was a research thing they did at Stanford. Stanford tends not to be a Christian institution. So they're not there to uh, underscore biblical values. They're just looking at the data, studying companies. And he's got a, a front here. He's got a picture of the research team. He's got about 15 people. And they did this full time for three years. So they're looking at all these factors, these companies that just went crazy. That, For instance, Walgreens. I mean, Walgreens has been around forever. And they always had the little uh, soda fountain thing. I remember Walgreens when I was a kid. Well, 15 years ago, Walgreens was going nowhere. Now they're everywhere. Because what happened was Walgreens decided they were going to chuck their old image and they were going to do one thing. They were going to become the most accessible drugstore in the world. So if you notice, every Walgreens that you see now is located on a what? On a corner. That's in here. They decided that's what they were going to do. They were going to be the most, it, we're going to be easy to get to. And they literally, in some towns, they literally moved their store a half a block because it was in the middle of the block. They bought the property on the end, and they moved the sucker and built a new store. It's an amazing book. But he doesn't start with that. He starts with the kind of CEOs that they had. And one of the things that he points out is that the CEOs of these companies that are in this book, nobody knows about. Nobody's ever heard of these guys because they're level five leaders. He starts off with a quote from Harry Truman. Harry Truman said, you can accomplish anything in life provided that you do not mind who gets the credit. That's interesting because last night I was reading about Harry Truman. Harry Truman, I didn't know this about Truman. Harry Truman uh, is the only American president of this century who didn't go to college. Harry Truman was, uh, was just an average guy. He wasn't a leader in school. He wasn't, uh, uh, he wasn't a real popular guy in school. He never was president of anything in high school. 
He just was a worker. That's all this guy did. Uh, he was nondescript. He, did, he wasn't a member of any organizations. But when he was 33 years old, he wound up getting drafted, and he wound up going to war. And he wound up, uh, he, he wound up serving in the last days of uh, World War I, 33 years old. And just through attrition and all that stuff, he wound up being a sergeant. He'd never, he'd never been promoted to anything. I mean, this guy was just your basic guy in the background, colorless. Uh, nobody knew this guy. One night, he's out on the front lines, and panic sets in because the troops think they've been gassed by the Germans. They can hear him out there. Some guy smells something. He says, gas. Well, they didn't have gas masks. These guys start to cut and run. You know what Truman did? Truman got mad. And he stood up and he started yelling at those guys. And quite frankly, he started cussing them out with every, with every word he could think of. And they were so shocked because they'd, they'd never heard a word out of this guy. They'd never heard him talk like that. And they were so stunned. And they saw his anger. And he said, you guys, get back here and follow me. And he started charging. And you know what they did? They turned around and they charged with him. For the first time in his life, at the age of 33, Truman found out that he was a leader. What brought about, I mean, it was a turning point in this guy's life. Did he view himself as a leader? Did anyone else think he was a leader? No. What brought out, what brought out leadership in his life? War brought out leadership. From then on, he was never the same. At 33, he discovered what he was inside because he was in the midst of the battle. Uh, Truman was a level five leader. You can accomplish anything in life, provided you do not mind who gets the credit. How many of you guys have ever heard of Darwin Smith? Darwin Smith, in 1971, was named CEO of Kimberly Clark, which in 71, Kimberly Clark was not doing real great. They were kind of just getting by. They were struggling. They were having a rough time. There was a lot of contention on the board if they ought to hire Darwin Clark. But what happened in those 15 years is that Darwin Clark under his leadership, Kimberly Clark outperformed Coca-Cola, Hewlett-Packard, 3M, and General Electric. Then he talks about this guy. The thing that stands out about this guy is that, number one, this guy doesn't want the limelight. He doesn't care if people know who he is or not. Um, he just wants to enable other people to be fulfilled, and he wants the company to do well. Here's a definition of a level five leader. Level five leaders channel their ego needs away from themselves and into the larger goal of be building a great company. It's not that level five leaders have no ego or self-interest. Indeed, they are incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the institution, not themselves. Transfer that to kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting about Darwin Smith. He worked his way through college. He didn't have any money. He didn't come from a wealthy family. He'd work at International Harvester while he was going to Indiana University. Uh, he was going to night school, and he worked during the day. And one afternoon, at the end of his shift, he cut off his finger. And uh, so he ran to the emergency room, had him look at it, bandaged it up, went to class, made it to class, was there the next morning, never missed a day of work. You know what that's called? That's called courage. And I'll tell you what else it's called. It's called character. We live in an age where image is valued over character. It takes courage to declare the word of God publicly, but it takes just as much courage to live the word of God privately. There are two ways to teach. You teach with your words, 
and you teach with your wife. And obviously, when you put both together, that's the most powerful thing. Let me ask you this. I asked you earlier about the Word of God in your life. Um, what you see, how you evaluate yourself. If there's an area where you're starting to let it get cut out from under you, here's the other question I put to you. What would your wife say about that about you? What would your kids say about that about you? Do they see you holding fast to the Word of God? Not just publicly, but privately. Uh, it's been said many times, reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when nobody else is around. Um, it takes courage to fight, but guys, we're in the fight of our lives. We've got to stand together on the Word of God, and we've got to strive together. And God will do great things. But it's a battle. Let's bow our heads and let's pray for ourselves, shall we? It's interesting, Lord, that uh, we look at a business book like the one we just quoted from and we read about level five leadership. That's just a biblical principle. Uh, a leader that's not looking for attention, a leader that's looking to serve. That comes straight out of your word. Father, we're living in a culture that is, uh, that is hollowed out. We're living in a culture that has... Uh, lost all foundation and has lost all roots and, 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 and we're saddened because we see so many in evangelical churches going down the same path. Uh, Lord, we, we are grieved by this. And first of all, Lord, we pray for this church and we pray uh, for the leadership of this church that we would never waver from the truth of your word that we would never cross that line into wondering about how people are going to respond to a message. If it's truth, we just give the message. We just declare it. Their response does not hold authority over us. The authority is the Word of God. May that always be the case here. Then, Father, we would pray for ourselves individually. We pray that we might be men of the book. We pray that we might be men of the gospel. Lord, we're not preachers, most of us. We're, we're, we're guys that are out in the workplace, in the marketplace. We're not guys that are opening up the Bible and preaching 30, 40, 50-minute sermons on a weekly basis. Yet the fact of the matter is, Lord, that every one of us is preaching a sermon every day of our lives by how we live. And there are people that are watching us. And there are people that are listening to us. And most of us are not even aware that they're watching and that they're listening. This is why there can't be a divide because between what we believe and declare publicly and what we live privately. Help us to be men of congruency. Help us to be men of integrity in the sense that what we do adheres to and fits with what we declare. We've all fallen short. We all struggle with this. But, Lord, that's our desire. Give us a love for your truth. 
Give us a love for application of your truth. And Father, use us to make a difference. Use us, Lord, quite frankly, to be an example to someone else. Use us, Lord, to be a role model for someone else. We want, we want our lives to count. In the area that you have placed us, in the post that you have assigned us in this battle, may we honor you, Lord, by our courage to declare truth and to live it in private. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Lord bless you.